Last week, uh, Richard, who was one of the guitarists this evening, introduced us to one of the best-known Old Testament judges, Samson. But he not only introduced us to Samson, he actually took us through lots of his story. He covered Judges chapters 13, 14, and 15, which in the space of, I think it was 35 minutes, was uh, very impressive. But as Brian says, Richard also left us, or more specifically left me, uh, with these three questions. Was Samson a type of or a foreshadowing of Christ? Are there parallels between Samson and the nation of Israel? And what is the Bible's final verdict on Samson? I will attempt to answer those, but particularly the third one is where I'm going to spend more time on. But tonight we're going to look at just one chapter. Uh, It's the final chapter in Samson's story. So it's Judges chapter 16, and I forgot to look up what page it is. 259? Thank you, Richard. 259. And this is a chapter which covers Samson's relations, which is probably the best way to put it, with a couple of women, including Delilah. And I'm sorry to those who were here last week, but unfortunately, or should I say thankfully, Tom Jones wasn't available this evening to come and sing that rather interesting track about murder. Uh, Judges 16 also deals or details Samson's final act of destruction plus his dying prayer. Um, And we'll come to that or both of those things a little later. But before we work our way through this chapter, let me say something right up front. If you've ever felt like or you know someone who's ever felt like a faithless, foolish, fallen failure, then Samson is another one of those Bible people, another one of those Old Testament characters who offers us hope and who points us beyond them and beyond ourselves to a God whose patience, whose forgiveness, whose faithfulness, whose compassion, whose care, whose long-suffering, whose grace and unconditional love are truly amazing. And I'll say more about that as we go along. And actually, I'm going to say that lots and lots of times this evening. And I loved what the girl sang, just that phrase, God's boundless love and fathomless grace. That, that's one of the main issues we're going to be thinking about this evening. But let's read the first three verses, because although the NIV uh, titles this section uh, Samson and Delilah, there's another brief and slightly strange incident with a different woman and a set of city gates. So let's read the first three verses together. One day Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute. He went in to spend the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here, so they surrounded the place and they lay and wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night, saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. And then he got up and he took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and he tore them loose, bar and all. And he lifted them to his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, chapter 15 ended by telling us that Samson led Israel for 20 years. So we're now a couple of decades down the line as we get into chapter 16. So Samson, some people think, 
is around 40 years of age. Now he has been married to a Philistine from a place called Timnah. No idea of her name. But that marriage ended really quickly in relative disaster. In fact, Judges 14 tells us that she was given to Samson's friend who attended him at his wedding. So it seems that she remarried Samson's best man, which must have been a real kick in the teeth. But the point of all this is that Samson is no longer in a relationship. He doesn't seem to have remarried. And clearly, he's struggling to keep a lid on his sexual urges. Lust and the temptations that accompany lust were a reality for this middle-aged man. And so one day, as the text says, he heads off to Gaza. He heads into Philistine territory where he sees a prostitute. Question. Did he go to Gaza with the intention of seeing a prostitute? I don't know. But whatever lay behind his trip to Gaza, he sees a prostitute, he finds himself confronted with temptation, he caves in, and he goes into her house or into the brothel, and he spends the night or part of it in her arms. See, what we see with our eyes has the potential to mess with our hearts and minds. Or should that be the other way around? It messes with our minds and then our hearts. I have no doubt it's one of the reasons why the Bible warns us against the lust of the eyes. It's a real pity that Samson didn't take Job's advice, who said on one occasion, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Strong words. But seeing isn't necessarily the problem. You can't walk around blinkered. You can't live your life in an isolated bubble. It's what you do next that often, often causes the problem and does the damage. You see, for David, the sight of Bathsheba bathing wasn't really the issue. He could have headed back to bed and left it at that. But whenever he sent for her, well, that was the beginning of the end. For Eve, seeing the tree, which according to Genesis 3, 6, was pleasing to the eye, that wasn't the issue. The real problem kicked in whenever Eve walked over to it, took its fruit, and ate. It was then that, if you like, all hell broke loose. For Samson, seeing a prostitute wasn't a sin. But it's what he did next that was so disappointing. The Bible makes it really clear that there is a progression with temptation. Temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in every way. And yet we all know he was without sin. Temptation is inevitable in this life. But it's what we do with it that defines a moment and sometimes defines a life. And David and Eve and Samson all saw something. The problem was they kept looking. And there is no doubt that if you keep looking at the forbidden thing, the attraction grows. Desires are fed 
And before you know it, you're up to your neck in sin. Jesus saw the stones that could have been turned into bread. Jesus saw over the edge of the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus saw the kingdoms of this world that the devil offered him. But rather than dwell on them, rather than gaze at them for any length of time, Jesus resisted temptation and walked away intact. See, the crucial battle with temptation is always at the beginning. And so my advice is keep walking. Samson, you saw a prostitute, just keep walking. Stop watching whatever it is you're watching. Take that thought captive immediately. And you stand a chance. But when we stop and when we stare or when we take it to the next stage or the next level, not only in our thinking but also in our behaviour, then that's when we're asking for trouble. What do you see? What are you looking at that you know is unhelpful? Who are you looking at who's out of bounds? And more importantly, what are you going to do next? Well, back to the story. Word gets out that Samson's in town. And so a crowd gathers with the express intention, the text says, of killing him. Although for some reason, and I don't really understand this, but for some reason they're going to wait until morning to do it. Samson decides to get out of bed in the middle of the night, for whatever reason. And he decides to leave town. Now those who were wanting to kill him must have been asleep. Because no one tries to stop him. No one tries to kill him. But as he walks through the doors of the city gate, he rips them off the wall. He takes the two posts with him and the bar. He puts them on his shoulders and he carries them to the top of a hill. Which was not only a pretty impressive feat of strength, but it was also a very powerful statement of defiance. Because here Samson was declaring that the Philistines are never going to defeat or capture me. Samson, at this point, had sinned with a prostitute, but God was still with him. Because remember, where did Samson's strength come from? It came from God. And it's good to know that whenever we mess up, God doesn't just abandon us there and then. Pick up the story again, verse 4. When sometime later it says, Samson falls in love with none other than Delilah. Just to change our position, make sure you're still with me. Let's stand together for the next uh, section as we publicly read God's word. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Well, Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not, that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. 
So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you've made a fool of me. And you've lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? He says, well, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you were to weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids off his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep, pulled out the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, She called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him and his strength left him. And then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and I'll shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding corn in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Grab a seat. It's a great story. Do you know the the appeal of money, the appeal of lots of money, is incredibly strong. Even if getting it will probably wreck your relationships. And I wonder how many people down through the years and how many people in our current culture are sacrificing their marriages, sacrificing their relationships with their kids, sacrificing friendships in the pursuit of having more money than they really need. For Delilah, the prospect of getting in one lump sum more cash than it's reckoned she could earn in 500 years. Well, that was beyond her wildest dreams. And even if it meant hurting someone who said they loved her, well then, so be it. And in order to get the payout, Delilah needs to discover the source of Samson's strength. And so rather bluntly, she just asks Samson, listen, tell me, what is it that makes you so strong? And rather bizarrely, she also asks asks him, what would it take to tie you up securely? Now, for some reason, Samson treats this all as a bit of a game. And so three times he suggests three different ways to tie him up. And whenever Delilah shouts, the Philistines have come to capture you, Samson jumps up, breaks free, 
and nobody is any the wiser. Now, did Samson know the danger he was in? Or did he believe he was invincible? Or was Samson just plain stupid? Well, Leon Wood makes this comment. One cannot help but wonder at the unbelievable credulity and stupidity of Samson in not recognizing the true intent of the woman. Now, Delilah must have been increasingly frustrated, not exactly seeing the funny side of this game. And probably thinks, listen, my big payout is looking less and less likely. But finally she makes a breakthrough. And verse 16 is a classic, and I heard some of you laughing as we read through it. And I'm so tempted to comment on it, but wisdom dictates that I don't. But it says, she tormented him with her nagging day after day until Samson was sick to death of it. And it's echoes, it's echoes of Proverbs 27:15, where it says, a quarrelsome wife. And some people believe that Samson and Delilah were husband and wife. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. I'm not going to comment. Delilah wears him down and finally he gives in. And out comes the razor and Samson loses his hair and loses his strength. And in some ways, one of the issues here again is temptation. And that's that's one of the key things I want us to think about and go away from here thinking about this evening. Temptation. And how we actually deal with it. You see, Samson knew that no razor was ever to come near his head. He had taken a Nazarite vow. No razor was ever to come anywhere near his head. But rather than get out of the situation, rather than walk away from the initial request, rather than walk away from the temptation to reveal the source of his strength, Samson plays games. And do you ever do that with temptation? Do you ever play with it? Do you ever entertain it to a certain extent? Let it mess with your mind, mess with your head for a little too long. Simon Robinson puts it like this. There is a danger that, like Samson, we can toy with temptation, pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable as far as we can. As the Charlie Brown comic strip says, I can resist everything except temptation. You see, temptation is powerful. And if you play with it, then, as Samson's experience shows, the results are often disastrous. And the moment Delilah asked Samson to reveal the source of his strength, Samson should have recognized the danger. He should have prayed the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, lead me not into temptation, and then he should have done a Joseph. And he should have got himself out of there as quickly as possible. Instead, he toys with it. He plays with it. And not only does he lose his hair, and not only does he lose his strength, but he loses something that's far more important. And this has got to be one of the saddest and most tragic verses of Samson's entire story, and maybe even of the entire Bible. Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. And to add insult to injury, the Philistines gouge out his eyes, and they take him to prison and bind him up and make him grind corn before we pick up the story again let me ask you a question what do you think happened to Delilah and all that money where did she go no idea the Philistines are are obviously delighted And they've finally got their man. Because Samson, as we know, and as Richard told us last week, 
He's been a real source of frustration to this people group. And so one day the rulers gather at the temple because they want to celebrate their achievement. They want to offer sacrifices to their god Dagon. And the place is crowded. It says that 3,000 plus turn up. And so the rulers decide it's showtime. And so they send for Samson and they order him to do a turn. But the Philistines make a number of crucial mistakes. The first, and this is brilliant. The first is verse 22. It's a failure to notice that Samson's hair is growing back. Did you notice that it says that in the text? That Samson's hair began to grow back. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Hair does that, doesn't it? But when you know or you have discovered that someone's strength and the length of their hair are closely connected, surely you would ensure they remain completely bald. It's a schoolboy error. Mistake number two on the Philistines' part. They summon Samson and they position him between two load-bearing central pillars of the temple. Not clever. But maybe the biggest mistake they make is when they offer a liturgy to a non-god. Look at verses 23 and 24. And this really does connect, I think, quite well with, with how Heather has led us. But look at verses 23 and 24. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God and to celebrate saying, Our God has delivered Samson into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. They think Dagon has delivered Samson. And so they give Dagon the glory. But as we all know, it's the absence of Yahweh, not Dagon's power, that accounts for Samson's shame. And whenever honour and glory go to anyone or anything else other than the one true God, there will always be repercussions. It's probably why the early church added that phrase to the end of the Lord's Prayer that you won't find in Scripture, but we still pray it. What do we pray at the end of the Lord's Prayer? For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Because you see, God will always have the last say. And so when a people group decide to rob God of his glory, And praise a non-God. God will never stand back and let that happen. And so the Philistines make a number of crucial mistakes. But what happens next is deeply moving and it's very personal. And look at verse 28 where we read these words. That then Samson prayed to the Lord. And what is Samson's opening line? O sovereign Lord, remember me. See, that's a cry from the heart. But why would God remember Samson? Because the text has made it clear, God's left him. Well, the only reason that we can give, the only reason or suggestion that I can offer, is that God remembers Samson 
because of his amazing grace and unconditional love. Even in the wake of miserable failure. You see, God hears the prayer of a faithless, foolish, fallen failure. As Moses once proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord is compassionate. He's a gracious God. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And Samson offers hope to those who mess up. And I'll guarantee you there's probably not one of us here this evening who would say, listen, I've, I've never made mistakes. Well, Samson offers us hope. And his specific prayer on this occasion is this, please strengthen me just once more. And God answers his prayer. Even though God has stepped away from him, God listens to this cry from the heart. He remembers Samson and he hears his prayer. And so Samson reaches out and he pushes those two central load-bearing pillars of the temple and he cries, let me die with the Philistines. And he brings the house down literally. And then we read, Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. And so back to Richard's three questions. Was Samson a type of Christ? Well, at one level, all 12 heroes in this book point towards Christ because they were all judges, stroke deliverers, who point us in our thinking towards the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer. But the question is, was Samson more typical of Christ than the other 11? Well, different people have different thoughts on that. But maybe the one key issue to note, and the only one thing I want to say is this. How Samson, like Jesus, laid down his life in order to defeat the enemy. Maybe in that, Samson is a type of Christ. Question two, are there parallels between Samson and the nation of Israel? Well, one commentator says that Samson is Israel in concentrated form. And I like that idea. Because he was raised up out of nothing, just like Israel. He was richly gifted, just like Israel. He panders around with other loves and other lovers, just like Israel, sadly. He always expected that Yahweh would be there for him and doesn't realize But there comes a time when God steps away, just like Israel. But also Samson is one who finds themselves on the receiving end of God's amazing grace, just like Israel. What are Richard's third question? What is the Bible's final verdict on Samson? Well, for an answer to that question, we need to go to the end of the Bible. And we need to go to Hebrews 11, which Richard referred to last week. And that well-known chapter, and let me just pick it up, and it's on the screen there in verse 32. And the writer says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. And lots of those statements you could say apply directly to Samson. 
He did conquer. He did subdue a kingdom. He did administer God's justice. He did shut the mouth of a lion. He did escape the edge of the Philistine's swords. He did become powerful in battle. He was tortured. He did face jeers. He was put in prison. So what is the Bible's final verdict? These were all, including Samson, commended for their faith. The foolish, faithless, fallen failure is commended for his faith. And for me, there there is no doubt that much of Samson's life serves as a warning. And we've certainly touched on some of that this evening. But Samson's story also offers us hope. Hope in restoration to everyone who has messed up. And Hebrews 12.1, we all know, goes on to say that since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, which includes Samson, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, like Samson, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, and Gideon, and Barak, and and all these people. Let us keep running the race with perseverance. And it seems that many of us, that I, I slip, I fall, I end up covered in mud a lot of the time. But then when I read down this list of heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, I quickly realize how many of them slipped up. How many of them fell flat on their faces. How many of them got caked in dirt at times. And so Samson and the rest are a real comfort to me. I love their stories. Because although they didn't always get it right, although their faith was weak at times, their God, our God, my God of grace, he sees them through. Because he who's begun a good work in you, he will carry it on to completion, despite your limping and despite your stumbling along. So, was Samson good? Was he bad? Or was he unlikely? I reckon he was all three. But then again, so am I. And therefore I echo Samson's prayer. O Sovereign Lord. Remember me.